0: Food justice means that we all eat, and we all eat well.
1: I'm Dan Smolin, and this is the Tightrope Podcast. We tell the stories of people who are defining the future of work. Our guests walk the tightrope away from meaningless toil and towards work that is profound, protects the planet, empowers people, and is fun to do meaningful work. The stories that our guests tell and the insights that they provide will inspire you to connect with work and experiences that stoke your passions and make the world a better place. For the future of work is meaningful work.
0: This week, we meet
1: nationally recognized regenerative farmer and social entrepreneur, Maurice Small. Maurice finds his bliss in empowering people from around the country and beyond to develop meaningful work skill and opportunities in regenerative farming. As a result of his leadership, people who have never planted a garden learn how to feed themselves and others with truly nutritious, locally grown food. But what gives Maurice the most purpose in his work is the cause of food justice. He wants us all to eat better, eat local, and help ensure that our communities thrive. We cover a lot of ground in our discussion, including how our relationship to food affects our health, our neighborhoods, our local communities, and our work. This is a truly inspiring conversation that we think you will enjoy. And you will understand why we are eager to bring Maurice back to the tightrope for future episodes to expand our discussion. We spoke with Maurice Small earlier this week over Skype from his farm in Atlanta, Georgia. Maurice Small, welcome to the tightrope. Dan, it's nice to be here. Trust me. Oh, I trust you, my friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> You are the founder and principal of Small Enterprises. So my first question is, what is that and what is the work that you do?
0: Small Enterprises, Dan, is a number of interesting businesses in that we work with farmers around soil creation. We work with communities around food access and we work with individual families around how to secure healthy food in their own backyard, on their patio, indoors, and so on. We operate a consulting business out of small enterprises, and we also operate a herb business out of small enterprises, which is called Small Farms.
1: Now, I noticed on your website you do internships for individuals but also for families. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that.
0: Sure. The need was a rising about five years ago. And people kept asking, you know, how do I learn? How do I
1: participate
0: beyond coming out to your volunteer days? And I live in Maine or I live in California or I live in Nevada. How do I, you know, how do I get your wisdom where I live? So my wonderful wife and I, we were able to create a platform that allowed me to virtually be with the families or the individuals to help them figure out what it is they needed to do most. So we, Begin by talking with them about what their needs and wants are and how to address it. And then we customize a curriculum for that person or that family. And the internships grew from there. And currently we have interns uh, in the Caribbean and from Maine to California, up in Canada, and all points in between.
1: So what's the end goal for the internship? Are people seeking a way to sustain themselves? Or is it for the work opportunities? Or is it both? It's both, Dan. There's a number of
0: people that are young, you know, young as in under 30 that are looking for some career type shift. They aren't happy with their current job in aerospace. They aren't happy with their current job with technology and the earth is calling them. So they'll come and work with me in an internship for six months or a year and get their chops. And I'll refer them to whoever it is around the world or this country in America and have them, you know, intern with them further. What happens usually is that person is able to gather enough information and gather a number of bullet points that allows them to create the language that they're looking for so that when they go for an interview, they're able to ace the interview. They're also able to, because of the practicum that's involved with the hands on soil creation, with the hands on of seed saving, with the hands on of all of those other wonderful things that, you know, is involved in taking care of the earth they're able to get their hands dirty. And as they get their hands dirty, they're able to see you know, the truth of who they really are. And as they emerge from this internship, they're able to apply that in another job. They create their own farms. They create their own community garden systems, community composting systems. They're able to do whatever it is we outline for them to do in their initial introduction to the internship. And so far, so good. If you look on our interns then and now page on mariesmall.com, You'll see a number of those stories.
1: So they could go into work doing regenerative farming, or they could do this as a side hustle, or it could just be a way of making the work that they currently do palatable. As you said, getting their hands in the soil.
0: That's about what happens. Uh, Some of the people that I've worked with have become teachers, and some have become doctors and some have become mayors and some have just become leaders in their own community because of the simple act of planting a seed and creating soil for that seed to go into. The ramifications of what it is to be an intern are far and wide. I don't have any expectations except for people getting the most out of their time spent with me. And people are getting the most out of that time because they have a consciousness that is being developed around how to work with regenerative agriculture in a farm that was conventional for 20 years. How do we bring that farm back to healthy soil? How do we bring back the pollinators to that farm that have been displaced for 20 years? And it goes deeper than that because some of the interns look at how does this system I'm working with here in the hospital, how do we make it sustainable for the patients and their families? How do we make it sustainable for the bottom line of a hospital where we can begin to compost? How do we begin to look at our green waste in the hospital? How do we install these lights that come on when a person enters the room? All these questions begin to emerge once the internship is in full flow and the people are never the same because the outlook changes.
1: You mentioned hospitals. We sadly lost my mother-in-law to COVID earlier this year. And prior to that, Mm -hmm. prior to COVID, she was hospitalized a lot. And the hospital she was in, great facility, but devoid of any green space. And I would look out Mm -hmm. the window from her hospital room and see a tar-covered roof. And I thought that Mm -hmm. was such a wasted opportunity. One, because they could grow their own food for the hospital, which would be of higher quality than they're probably getting from procurement. But Mm -hmm. there's also the intrinsic value for the patients, the healing value. Yes. Well, first, Dan, I'm
0: deepest condolences on the loss of your mother. I I can't imagine. Mother, my mom is still alive. M- m- m-
1: mother-in-law, mother-in-law, my, my, my mother, in law de- My dear mother is still very much alive. It's it's our dear mother-in-law, sadly, who passed away. But thank you very much. I really appreciate that.
0: Yes, yes. Again, condolences. As you look out on those hospital roofs, and I've I've done that many times myself, visiting friends and neighbors, I think about. The options of green roofs, how do we use plants to soften up the landscape so that there is something green up there? How do we soften up that roof so that all the water filtration doesn't make its way straight down the building and into the watershed, but it stops and slows down a bit with the plants? And of course, yeah, how do we grow food on that roof? How do we put up a safety fence around that so that we can protect people? And how do we get a team from the community to come in and maintain it? How do we do that? How do we do that with ex entrepreneurs that we call drug dealers? And how do we bring the drug dealers that are entrepreneurs, revamp and rechange, you know, the opportunity scope and have them grow the food at the hospital on the roof in vacant space so that they can make some money selling that food to the hospital and their community? How do we create food security on a hospital campus or a company campus or a company like uh, Progressive or Xerox, if they're still around, or anybody? How do we create green infrastructure in the landscape? How do we do these things? That's the question. And then, how do we get the board of directors to support us in our mission to grow food or to soften the watershed, water impact of water that's falling? All these questions come out in the internship and all these questions come out in the board of directors meetings and Ideally, you know, I'm the one that'll be able to help them answer these questions along with a team of people because so it's not just me, it's a team.
1: Among the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you, Maurice, is that I believe that our chronic food problems are solvable. And the food problems we have, I believe, kind of align themselves with this 20th century thinking of the American dream where we got away from being on farms and being close to food and farming and growing food was frowned upon. It was a sign of not being successful. Being successful meant you went to the supermarket and you bought food and it was convenient. And we all know how that turned out. We all got Uh fatter and sicker. And it's not just in inner city areas. I think across the board, We are chronically ill people because we are not close to where food is grown, and we are not close to those who grow it. And I'm wondering if you could lend some scholarship to this thought of our chronic food problems. What happens when we get closer to where food is grown and to the people that grow it? What happens to our health, and what happens to our emotional health? Dan,
0: that's um, that's my passion right there.
1: I think the first step
0: that happens usually is when people begin to see the possibilities of the oranges, the banana peels, the potato skins, the onions going somewhere, and then three months later, the transformation has happened, and then you take that transformation six months later into a finished product, and you place it in the ground, i.e. compost, and you have saved the seed over the past three months of a plant that you grew, And you take that seed, and you put that seed in that compost, and you see that you, you, Dan, are the alchemist. You have worked in partnership with nature. You have gotten your hands dirty. You went out in the rain and dumped compost. You went out in the hot sun and turned compost. You went out and you saved that seed in a special place at the right climate. You participated in nature. There's something magical that happens when people begin to participate in nature. And that nature doesn't have to always happen outside, that nature can happen inside using hydroponics or aquaponics. As people begin to participate in the life of something else besides their cell phone or their computer stream, they begin to realize that there's a bigger picture out there and I'm a part of it. Hey, I've never seen a butterfly up self before, but now that I put these cosmos in, these cosmos are attracting these butterflies. And look at it's not just one butterfly that's yellow, it's a blue one, and it's a white one, and it's an it's a orange one. People begin to see something, and as they see something, something takes place in their heart, and something begins to take place in their soul. They begin to grasp what it is to be in harmony. As an alchemist, and we all are alchemists, we all are born change agents, we all can begin to see the sufficient light that is there for all of us. We just have to plug into it via the soil, via the seeds, via the plants, indoors or out. And we are able to magnificently begin to appreciate the simplicity of what it is to become part of our own ecosystem. Another point that being involved means is you are able to accept the challenge of being uncomfortable. As humans, we don't like to be uncomfortable. It's been bred out of us over the past probably 100 years since we've been off the farm. As we look at what comfort is, it's not comfortable to be outside and sweat for some people. It's not comfortable to learn something new as far as soil and insects and bugs and, you know, sun and and rain. It's not comfortable to be out there in the snow uncovering the plants to harvest some kale. But that discomfort sure goes away when people are able to go outside and it's 20 degrees, and you pull back that cover, or you walk into your greenhouse, and you've got kale, and it's the middle of January, and you're in Maine, or you're in Virginia, or you're in Minnesota. Suddenly, what you've done previous, two months prior, makes all the sense in the world. As those things make all the sense in the world, you begin to share that blessing. And as you share that blessing, there's a replay. And that replay happens when you share the blessing with your neighbor and you give a zucchini or you give a pound of kale. All these blessings begin to just disintegrate all the old I'm uncomfortable, I'm nervous, I can't do. And then you're able to do and it transfers into just not doing it for yourself, but doing it for others, doing it for the birds, doing it for the chipmunks doing it for the possums, doing it, you know, and it goes on and on, doing it for the lady in the nursing home, doing it for the lady in the hospital, doing it for our first responders. All these things begin to magnify once people begin to get back in touch with their systems, natural systems. The last thing is, and there's a couple hundred thousand more, but the last thing right here, Dan, is the nutrient density. When you pick fresh herbs, when you pick fresh vegetables, when you pick fresh fruit, These things have an immediate effect upon your body and your body begins to recognize as your body recognizes all the enzymes, the metabolism in our body recognizes something new that's been there for thousands of years. But now it's back Mm -hmm. because that blueberry you just picked that you just popped in your mouth is seconds old (laughs) and it's still holding the earth juice in it. I love farmer's markets because that stuff was picked the day before and you get it the day after at a farmer's market. When you go shopping and bless the supermarkets and bless all the places where people buy food, but that stuff is usually, you know, five or six weeks old, if not more.
1: And heavily treated.
0: It can't have any nutrient dense, and it's been treated with chemicals. It's dead. It's sustaining you just on the fiber. It's not sustaining you with the life. The enzymes are not there when you're getting it and it's five or six weeks old. You're just sustaining life at a hair's width away from failure. As a result, growing your own, farmer's markets, knowing your farmer, knowing where your food comes from, knowing all these things, that's the wealth. That's the true wealth. That's the mediocrity gone sour. Everybody has Mm -hmm. that potential, Dan. Everybody can do it.
1: So, I want to ask you questions about some of your constituents. I first want to talk about places where historically there have been food deserts, city areas, where there aren't high quality supermarkets. You know, maybe there's a bodega, but they Mm -hmm. may be selling highly processed food, which is very expensive and making the people that eat it chronically ill over time. What Mm -hmm. happens when we introduce fresh food? and hydroponics into an area that doesn't have a lot of soil, or introduce traditional farming into areas that haven't seen agriculture in two, three hundred years?
0: A lot of it then boils down to changing the perspective. So when you put in a food system, you first hopefully talk with the residents. You're not just putting it in because they need it. You're putting it in because you've talked with the residents and the residents understand what's necessary and the residents want it. You can't just throw something into a a neighborhood and it works. If the residents don't like it, you'll turn your back the next day. It'll be destroyed. It'll be stolen. The true systems that stay for years and years are the ones where the residents are involved from the beginning, from the ground up, and they help design their food system as a result of their design. And we look at these systems not as food deserts, but as food oasis. And mm. oasis is where people come. And the people can look at something and say, wow, I didn't know this was already here. Yeah, you got tons of soil building capacity because you buy food and you throw food away. So let's buy food and let's compost instead of throwing it away. And suddenly 25 houses in a neighborhood are composting as a community on a large level, tons of compost a week, and they're managing it, and the worms are growing and growing. You've got all these things that begin to pop out of nowhere in these so-called food deserts, but you're also having things pop out of this community, which is a food oasis. This food oasis is the magical point of people coming together. All the animals come down, nobody fights. You know, that oasis thing in the movies where mm-hmm. you can see it now on, you know, one of the channels. All the animals are coming in, the crocodiles, the, the water buffalo, the, the you know, all the, all the animals, the hyenas, everyone's coming down. The elephants, the hippos are all coming down to drink from the same area, and they all go away peacefully. Same thing in these food oasis areas. People are able to control what it is they grow. They can figure out what it is they want to plant hydroponically out in the sun. There's an education that goes on along with sharing. So we're not just telling people what to do. We're sharing what their options are. And this is not a missionary type of thing. This mm-hmm. is something that is human. We are not going to another land to make them whatever. We are going to a land to ask them, do they want to participate? Chances are they're going to say yes, because they know what it's like not to have. When people can have out of their own backyards, there is a magical piece that takes place and this take this piece that takes place is them controlling their own and the nutrition's better. Mm-hmm. The kids go to school because they have a fresh breakfast along with the breakfast provided by the state. In this case, because you know kids are going back to school and kids are learning virtually, now's a good time to begin to think about how kids are going to be eating. And when the pandemic began everybody suddenly thought about where's my food coming from. And that's where knowing your local farmer comes in handy. People can ideally implant a small farm in a community and begin to support said farm in that community by keeping that dollar circular, by keeping that compost circular, by keeping those seeds circular. Everything begins to be truly regenerative, beginning with the people and their current resources. And that's how I believe, Dan, We can begin to make change in these neighborhoods that don't have. And I got to point out, Dan, that it's Mm. not just the urban, it's the rural. And there are people that live 25 miles away from a small city that still have to drive 25 miles to get their food because everything around them is corn or soybeans or wheat. You know, that's not sustainable either. They're putting food miles on top of food miles on top of food miles to get their food.
1: We talked about that. (laughs) I know a lot about soybeans because my brother's (laughs) in that business. So you had mentioned to me that some of these soybean farmers aren't growing their own food. And why is that? I think the convenience
0: that you mentioned a few questions ago, the convenience of what it is to you know, live in a country where you can just go shopping has taken us over and mm. we've forgotten what it was to grow our own food. A number of the farmers that I know, both, um, and I'm speaking now of the country, you know, mm. 50 miles away from a major city, those farmers are not growing their own food for their own table because they're growing so many commodity crops, tobacco, onions, corn, soybeans, wheat, things like that. And in some cases, some of the hemp farmers are pretty large as well, but they also don't have their own food system. So they have to drive you know, 25 miles to get their food. They've lost a step. And we as mm-hmm. people here in America have, have lost a step or two. So a couple of generations ago, everybody had a garden. A couple of generations ago, everybody knew what it was to save seeds. A couple of generations ago, we all knew what it was to go out in the morning and, you know, get the eggs. So we could have fresh eggs for breakfast. A couple of generations ago, we knew what it was to, you know, go out and get the, you know, the dinner. And we knew how to cook. Now it's, you know, microwave this, get it out of a box that. Saving seed, what is it? How do we do it? You know, it's a new paradigm and we've shifted from the old to the new. We're on the cusp of mm-hmm. a new generation, both in the cities and the country. And some of these farmers that are in the country that are food insecure themselves, but don't know it because they have a nice truck and they can drive 50 miles to get their food. Round trip takes them about three hours. One of those things of how do we recreate the paradigm and make food access healthy for everyone, both in the city and the country? Those are some of the questions.
1: I think what you're talking about is really food justice. And Mm -hmm. as we have institutional racism in this country, we also have institutional food injustice. And sadly, it affects a lot of people. Wealthy, not wealthy, urban, rural. We are a very sick country. And our lack of being close to nature and being close to wholesome food probably has mm-hmm. a lot of causality in that. Why is food justice important to you, Maurice?
0: Dan, it's, it's not fair. And this is where I get misty-eyed is, you know, the world isn't fair either, you know, but damn, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense that we have thousands of people that don't have access to food and they have to shop at a gas station. Ugh. Thousands. And it's not just Atlanta where there's, you know, you know 900,000 people in Fulton County. It's not just... A smaller city it's people and bless their hearts these uh, dollar stores have begun to you know carry food however i'm i'm sad because that food is frozen and processed and full of salt and sugar right and we all know that you know anything full of salt and sugar is not going to make us any healthier
1: right.
0: as a result i mean some of them carry bananas and an apple but i was getting gas in the truck a couple weeks ago, and I looked at the price of uh, a banana and an orange at the gas station. And bless their heart, they have fresh food now. (laughs) Mm. Fresh fruit at a gas station. However, it was 75 cents for an apple. Wow. Wow. A lot of people on a budget don't have that kind of money, let alone they have three or four kids, let alone, you know, it has to last them. That fresh food needs to be for everyone and everywhere. We have to begin to plant orchards in our cities. We have to begin to plant orchards in the country. We have to begin to train each other on how to graft and cross-pollinate these plants so that we can have food. We have to begin to do these things because we're gonna end up extinct. However, as long as we are here, we have to treat each other fairly and we have to be able to feed each other without the chemicals, without the high amounts of salt, without the high amounts of sugar, we have to begin to think about food sovereignty and food justice being equal, not just those that can afford to shop at some of the higher price organic stores, not just some of the, those that can order stuff off of the online ordering places and it comes to your door. We have to look at those that can't, that have to walk to the corner gas station or drive to the corner dollar store and pick up their food for the evening. Mm. It's not sustainable, Dan. It's not sustainable. Food justice means that we all eat and we all eat well.
1: And I really like your idea, especially in public places. We have tens of thousands of public schools across this country with usable land that could be mm-hmm. turned into community plots where parents of students in that school could partake in getting fresh food from those garden plots, either that they tend and that they maybe pay a small fee to manage or that they get for free. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see it go in even further. You know, I used to own a home. I don't own real estate mm-hmm. anymore. But I wanted to have a garden mm-hmm. plot, and my homeowners association would not allow it. They thought it was, oh. un- they thought it was untidy. <laughs> but that was typical, and I hope that changes because... What better way to show your humanity than to grow food and share it with your neighbors?
0: Yeah, I've, I've worked with a couple of homeowners associations around the country, and getting the people on the board of the homeowners association to agree for a one-year trial has been the best way to get past all that it's going to be untidy right. type stuff. We're going to lose our home value type stuff. Here in Atlanta, we work with a family Who fortunately the homeowners were part of the board, and we helped them create two raised beds in the backyard because the law says, well, their law says you can't do it in the front yard. And that first year they had a beautiful bumper crop of everything. We taught them how to save seeds, and life was really good, and everything was wonderful. It began to spread throughout the complex, Mm. and before you know it, this family was teaching other families how simple it was. To compost how simple it was to grow food how simple it was to be able to gather some you know untreated wood and grab a pot or two put some seeds in with some decent soil and grow your own zucchini your tomatoes your kids are involved now all these things began to emerge in an area that typically does not have you know much greenery besides grass and a couple bushes that you can't eat so incorporating edible landscaping into this homeowner association group was beneficial because now a lot of them have herbs that they're able to season their even mill with, that they have planted in the front yard. Mm. And a lot of them have backyard raised beds. So everything's tidy. The lawn guys still come in and weed whack and trim. And, you know, nothing has changed except for people have better food access now. And that's food justice. Food access equals food justice. Talking with the Home Alone Association Board is the first step. Having an advocate on the inside is the second step. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. If they don't, we encourage them to go outside of the HOA and create a community garden on communal space someplace else. But still, you got to pursue it. At a home is the best, but take it outside and see what you can do as a community garden startup.
1: I got a couple extra questions. One has to do with the future of work, meaningful work impacts that this will have. What success stories are you most proud of from the people that have done your internship program?
0: I'm most proud of a gentleman, his name is uh, Frank Whitfield. And i would known Frank since he was 16 or 17 years old. And Frank Whitfield was uh, a rough and tumble urban guy in a small town in Elyria, Ohio, where we lived a number of years ago. And Frank always had an interest in community, very outspoken, very forthright in his beliefs. And he went for it every time, just a right. go for it type of guy. Frank wanted to learn how to grow food. Mm-hmm. Frank had a persistent cough or a, a persistent something in his throat, so he was always doing something to get this phlegm out of his throat. So he came by the house one day early on in our relationship, and I noticed that he was, you know, trying to get this phlegm out of his throat. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, how long you had that? He said, oh, it's been years. <laughs> so we went to the backyard, and I got a an herb, and I told him to chew the herb. It's going to be strong, but just chew it, and then put it in the bottom of your cheek and your gum, and just leave it there. And you feel something come up, just go ahead and spit it out. No problem. So he put the herb in his mouth, and he chewed it up, and his face turned sour. <laughs> and... He dealt with it, and within about 20 minutes, he began to spit stuff up. And, you know, after our little meeting was over, I asked him, you know, how's your throat feel? He said, you know, I haven't thought about it because I haven't done anything to it. Right. I spit that stuff out, and, you know, I don't know what happened, but it's gone. I'm like, that's the power of plants. That's the power of urban medicine. That's the power of knowing where your medicine comes from and your food comes from. And he was hooked from that moment on. He began to uh, think deeply. He traveled with me around the area, back and forth to council meetings, meetings with mayors and council people. He saw the inside track to changing a food system, and it got him hooked. He ended up uh, going to a local community college, and he started a program of food access at the local community college, Lorraine County Community College,
1: mm-hmm. in Lorraine
0: County, Ohio,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he was successful in starting a couple of backyard gardens. So there were about four or five backyard gardens that he was able to link into their own food system, you know, growing food, selling food, teaching young people how to grow food. And he got the kids off the street and he, you know, did the best he could to teach them what I had taught him. As a result, he was noticed by a lot of people and he began to get fast track on the course of life and he was able to get a couple of scholarships and get some serious internships i think he went to uh, a local nonprofit agency that's known for churning out excellence and he spent his year and a half there i believe and from there he did a couple of online things and he just excelled wherever and next thing you know he's running for mayor of this small town where he grew up oh my gosh and because of where he grew up and because of his hands-on as a kid and because of his taking other kids and adults under his wing, he was able to garner the votes and he became the mayor of the city of Illyria just this past autumn. And by all means, he's not the proudest one that I ever shared time with. There's so many more. Mm -hmm. However, he has that status of running an entire city with a budget and first responders and school system and streets and parks and rec. So he has from 16 years old, that point of view, on up to where he is now Mm. about how life can be. And because Elyria, I believe, is 73,000 people, Mm. he is able to successfully impact their lives as far as green infrastructure, as far as conservation of the watershed. He's able to make inroads that any other mayor would not have because they're educated in the regular way. Frank is thinking about the green infrastructure of a city and how green jobs can be applied to a rust belt city and how things can be turned around completely by using other simple concepts of how people should be treated, not the regular way, but a different
1: way. That is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Maury Small, thank you so much for being on the tightrope. If somebody hearing this interview wants to learn more about you and the work that you do, where on social media would you point them?
0: Well, get your <laughs> get mm-hmm. your list out and get your thumbs all greased up. All right, I am at Marie Small on Instagram and Marie Small on Twitter. I'm also at Small Farms S M A L L F A R M Z on Twitter. Right. I am on various Tumblr sites. There is a, a Tumblr site called Spencer's Boy, Food: The Simple Truth. Simple Food Small Farms on Tumblr. There's a number of others. And uh, LinkedIn is Maurice Small, uh, Metro Atlanta. And I think that's, that's, that's a few more, but that's about it. Those are the main ones. I'm looking for people to mentor. I'm looking for people to participate and create these food systems. And Dan, it's been nothing but pleasure talking with you this afternoon. It's, it's been a wonderful, enjoyable experience. I look forward to returning the favor one day soon.
1: Well. We're going to get you back on this podcast a few times because I think we're at a revolutionary point in the future of work. And I think the food narrative has a lot to do with it. I think if we can use this pandemic to gain a new and healthful appreciation for food, create a sense Mm -hmm. of community where we dine together again, where perfect strangers eat at communal tables and discover new things about themselves and and about others i think we will all win and i think we will have this opportunity to do it and when we get out of this pandemic hopefully i can make it down to atlanta we can break bread my friend
0: it'd be good you're always welcome dan always
1: thank you very much links to maurice small's social media are provided in the show notes for this episode At Dansmolin.com. Please join us again for more inspiring stories from people who walk the tightrope to seek and do meaningful work. You can subscribe to us where you get your podcasts or listen to current and past episodes on our website at Dansmolin.com. I'm Dan Smolin, and this is the Tightrope Podcast. Together, let's walk the tightrope to find and do meaningful work, for the future of work is meaningful work. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Let's connect again next week. Now get out there and support a local regenerative farmer.